Well, good morning. If uh, you're new with us, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. Um, we, you know, we're obviously, we're a church. Uh, hopefully you're aware of that and didn't think that you were waiting for some other thing to happen. If so, I apologize. Um, we need to work on our marketing if that's the case. But, so, as a church, we spend a lot of time thinking about who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. And one of the things that is amazing about Jesus is his ability to tell a good story. Now, the stories that Jesus tells are often, they're called parables. They're meaning stories. They're these really memorable stories that stick with you. And some of them are kind of told in such a way that all you need is the the surface meaning. You kind of read it once and you're like, I get it, I get it. But some of them have layers to them. And the more you peel them back, the deeper you go, the more it begins to work on you, which is why Jesus is so brilliant. Now, there's a story he tells that whether you're familiar with Scripture or not, you've probably heard some version of this. Um, I shouldn't say it's not so much a story as it is a picture that he paints for us. There's a a group of Jesus' teachings that's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. You find it in Matthew 5-7 through where he does some teaching on what it looks like to live life in the kingdom of God, to live life where we live as though God rules and reigns over everything. And in that, he tells a story about judgment. We find it in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, The scripture will be up here on the screen so you can read along with us. Jesus says this. He says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, if you think about this story, um, it's kind of just a, you know, it's it's a good illustration on the surface of why you shouldn't judge people, right? Because your problem is likely bigger than theirs, and so you should take care of your problem first. But if you think about it a little bit, if you chew on it, there's some layers there. It it goes a little deeper. I mean, think about uh, last time you had something in your eye. It's it's annoying, it's painful, Sometimes, like, you know, if it's, if it's really bad, like, your eyes get watery and it might be hard to see. So if you're driving and you have something in your eye, you might, maybe you've even had to pull over to kind of work at it. And, and it's really hard to focus or do anything when you've got a little tiny speck in your eye. Now, think about Jesus' illustration. So Jesus is talking about, like, he's giving, telling a story about someone who has, like, a beam stuck in their eye. Okay, now think about it. If you, if you think about this, it's ridiculous, right? Like, look at that. That's, he has this ginormous log protruding from his face. And he comes over, and he goes, hey, you got something. Eric, right there. I'm going to get that for you. Just hold tight, right? Now, how well is that going to go? Not well. not well, right? Like, not only am I completely incapable of actually seeing what needs to happen in his eye, but in the process of trying to clean it out, I'm likely going to kill him, right? Like, it's just going to happen. I'm going to run him through with the log that's coming out of my eye. And this is the story that Jesus tells. It's it's the picture that he paints for us. It's not just about don't judge people because you've got problems too. 
It's about the destructive nature of the things that exist in our lives that we need to give attention to because if we don't, not only does it keep us from seeing clearly, it causes our attempts to help others to backfire and be destructive. It's critical for us to deal well with our own log, with our own beam, before we attempt to do anything to help other people out. Paul is thinking about this, I believe, as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians. So the last couple of weeks, we've been in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, We're calling this series Vista because what Paul's doing is kind of taking this bird's eye view of the Christian faith. And he's talking about how God is working all things out for his purposes so that people could come to know their creator through Jesus and live as though Jesus is Lord. And that those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus could live that out in the world. That we could be channels of God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love in the world. But as Paul's kind of working through this, he gets to what we would call chapter 5. There weren't chapters originally, but it's helpful to kind of divide it up for, you know, so that we can engage it. And so what we would get to is chapter 5, and, and Paul kind of begins to do a deep dive on what it's going to take. If we're going to be people that God is going to work through to bring about transformation in the world, there's going to need to be some work done. So Paul jumps into that in chapter 5. We're going to read that together. Again, if you have a Bible, um, you can turn to Ephesians. It's kind of towards the end of the New Testament. It's in the back of your Bible. We're going to look at chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture will be up here on the screen. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk on wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, there is a lot there. And again, Paul is a dense writer. He's one of those guys who packs a lot into a little bit of space. And so we're not going to try and unpack all of that this morning. But there are some things I kind of want to drill down on. First of all, uh, Paul introduces this section by 
calling us to imitate God, to be like God, to reflect his character. We talk a lot about the fact that human beings were created in God's image to be like God. And that when the Bible talks about, about sin, about our brokenness, what it's talking about is our inability to be who we were created to be, to reflect God's image rightly in the world because of our self-centeredness, our brokenness, again, what the Bible would call a sin. So when Paul calls us to be imitators of God, he says specifically that we're to do that in a way that is Christ-shaped, that reflects the self-giving love of Christ, particularly as demonstrated in his death and resurrection, that that's to be our character, that's to be the shape of our lives that we live out in the world. But the trick is, in order for us to do that well, it's almost counterintuitive. The call to live a life of self-giving love in the way of Jesus is not a call to completely just be thoughtless about yourself for the sake of others. It actually takes some real work that we need to do personally. Think about it. It's, it's, kind, of like, it's kind of like getting healthy, right? So if, if you've lived for a while kind of in a situation where you're just not paying attention to your, your health. Maybe you've, you've gained a little bit of weight, and you're not happy with how you look, and, and you know, you, you want to get healthy. Well, that's not, a, that's not just a kind of like an easy answer kind of thing. It's not as though you would say something, to, like if someone comes to you and they're like, I want to lose some weight, that the correct response would be, well, then just stop eating. Right? That's not super helpful. It, it will probably accomplish that. But if the end goal is to be healthy... The way you get there isn't by just not eating. It's actually by completely reorienting the way you think about your life and your health. It's changing your eating habits. For some, it might actually be eating more, but just better. It's exercising. It's getting decent sleep. It's kind of this fully-orbed approach to life in a way that says being healthy matters. And so I'm going to make decisions that reflect that. If I want to be my best self, then I have to reorient everything about me. I can't just, like eat Doritos, but eat fewer of them, right? It's, it's kind of a whole different way of approaching how I'm going to be as a person. And this is what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about simply just go be nice to everybody. He's talking about a radical reorienting of our lives that changes who we are as people, in which we become something different. Because if you look at this word imitate, when he says imitate God or be imitators of God, that word's actually, it's not like copying. It's not just, hey, look at what he does and then go and do that like robots. That, that's not what that word means. What it actually means is something that's more, more closely associated to what we would say like become. Become like God. It's about becoming a different kind of a person. It's about having your character reworked, reshaped by God's Spirit in such a way that who you are is fundamentally different. Not that just you're doing different things, but that your very nature is changed, that you're a different kind of person. Author and pastor Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, The most important thing about you is not what you do, but who you become. Not what you do, but who you become. That our call is not to do good, but to become good. 
to become the kind of people that goodness flows out of us, that our lives reflect the character of God. This is what Paul and what Jesus ultimately is calling us to. But if we're going to do that, it's going to take some serious work personally, some, some significant self-reflection, a real willingness to do some hard work on ourselves. So when Paul begins to kind of lay out what this is going to look like, he gets really specific in terms of, of what he talks about that's going to kind of move us more towards reflecting the image of God. The three things that kind of, I mean, there's a lot of different specific things he mentions. The three things that kind of serve as overarching categories are one, greed. He hits greed a number of times. Uh, The idea of sexual immorality. And then foolish talk. Which when you kind of list those, you get the foolish talk and you're like, oh, that seems, eh, okay. Not sure I would have put that one as third on the list, but all right, we'll go with it. Um, But we'll get there in a second. I think it makes sense. So, It's easy to kind of wonder, like, why would Paul choose these things? Why not something else? Why not different things? But if you think about the nature of greed, sexual immorality, particularly those two, they're kind of the exact opposite of the self-giving love that Jesus models. They're they're both essentially self-indulgence at the expense of others rather than giving of oneself for the sake of others. It's the exact opposite. So think about greed for a minute. Now, greed is basically, it's amassing more than you need of something. That's the basic dictionary definition of greed, just getting more than you need. It's choosing to view your resources as something to be used for your benefit, not as gifts that you're given for the sake of blessing the world, but as gifts to be amassed for your own personal benefit. That's essentially greed. It's choosing to see the things that you have and hold tightly to them. To view what you have as yours and yours alone, rather than seeing the opportunity that you have to use what you have for others. And we often think about greed in terms of like, you know, corporate scandals, insider trading. You know, we think about all of this massive greed that exists out there somewhere. And that's real. And that should concern us. And we should care about that stuff. But what Paul and I think what Jesus would say is that before we even begin to think about how to deal with these kind of big issues out there, we need to take a long, hard look at the greed that exists in our hearts, at the ways in which I'm inclined to hold tightly to my things, at the ways in which I'm tempted to amass things for myself, for my own personal comfort and well-being, without thinking about the needs of others around me. That our primary concern needs to be the greed that exists in here. And as we work on that, it flows out into these other areas. Author Frederick Buechner says it this way. He says, Greed says that the more you get, the more you have. Christ says the more you give away, the more you are. 
the way of Jesus is fundamentally the reverse of greed. Greed is an assumption that we have a lack that we need to fill, and it's incumbent on us to get that for ourselves, and that other people might actually serve as barriers in that. And so we might actually have to push others aside to get what we need. Whereas the message of Jesus is that God, in his grace, lavishes on us all that we need so that we can live as channels of grace and love and generosity to others. To live in such a way as to... To live in, with greed in our hearts is to deny that message. Is to say that Jesus is essentially wrong about the nature of reality. That we have to hold tightly to our things. Because you just never know. What about sexual immorality? Why, why put that on the same on the same list. Again, sexual immorality is essentially greed with people. Uh, the word used here is a word, uh, the Greek word is pornea, P-O-R-N-E-I-A. So as you can kind of imagine, it's, it's the root word where we get the word pornography. And the, the basic idea around it is that it's any sexual indulgence in which the other person is used as an object for your own personal gratification as opposed to a partner that you're living in love towards. That anything outside of that mutual self-giving love in which you're kind of using someone to get what you want is in opposition to the way of Jesus. Because the idea, when, when we begin to see people as objects for our own gratification, it completely eliminates their, their standing, their personhood, their nature as someone who bears the image of God. And this is obvious when you think about things like pornography itself. right? If you think about the idea of looking at sexually explicit images for the sake of some kind of gratification. Clearly what we've done is we've eliminated the personhood of the individuals on the screen or on the page or however we're in taking that so that we can somehow fulfill our desires. There's no thought about that person's story or where they're coming from or, or what's going on or what might have driven them to this point that they're willing to exploit themselves so that other people can you know, pay some money and have a few minutes of pleasure. We completely eliminate their humanity for the sake of our own pleasure. It's an affront to the message of Jesus that God loves all of us and has, in fact, gone to the extreme of taking on flesh and giving himself away so that we can find life with him. Sexual immorality reduces people to objects that we simply manipulate for our own pleasure. And of course, porn is one outgrowth of that, but it, I mean, we do that in all sorts of ways. I mean, obviously, there's a lot in the press right now about people who are coming forward and saying they were in environments for years and years in which they were treated as objects who could be abused. There are patterns that we see where 
where people have been because they didn't have power, because they were kind of, in one way or another, weak or dependent. Others had taken advantage of them for their own pleasure. And that's horrible. It's a complete affront to what it means to be people made in the image of God. But that didn't start there. It started in the hearts of people who were willing to take the small step of objectifying another human being for their own personal pleasure. Now, obviously, not all of that grows to full-on abuse. But it's, the, it, it's all part of the same path. It doesn't begin by someone waking up one morning and saying, you know what I want to do? I want to exploit people who are weaker than me and, and abuse those who I have authority over. <clears throat> it's a slow growth in a particular direction after years and years of nourishing a self-centered, the self-centered idea that other people exist for my own pleasure. This is what Paul is getting at with this idea of, of sexual immorality. It's orienting life around yourself, using others for the sake of your own pleasure. This is opposite to the way of Jesus. And unless we are attentive to that own reality in our lives, we can't address it on any larger level. Until we recognize the damaging effects that objectifying other people has in us personally, even though we might think the, the results pale in comparison to, to what's happening out there, unless we're honest about that reality in our own hearts, we can't see clearly to move forward collectively. It begins with me. And then finally, Paul talks about foolish talk. Again, this might seem kind of odd, right? So we get greed, that's the big one. Sexual immorality, all right, we can see that. Foolish talk. Interesting. So why would, why would foolish talk go in here? Well, there may be other reasons, but one of the interesting things that we see that, that is clear in Scripture, but I think is also kind of self-evident, is that our language, the words we use, the things that we say, tend to function as a bit of a thermometer as to what's going on in our soul. Jesus said it this way in uh, the Gospel of Luke. This is the third biography of Jesus in, this, in the uh, New Testament. He said, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. The reason why foolish talk is so troublesome is because it's a direct reflection to what's going on internally. What you say says volumes more about what's going on in here than many of us would be comfortable with. So the other night, um, this, was a, this was a busy week for us. If you don't know us, if you don't know me, we have, we have four kids. Um, so they are now all in the range of like 11 to 16. So their lives are pretty busy. And so Tracy and I spend a good like 60% of our time kind of driving them from thing to thing to thing. Um, so between that and some other things we had going on here at church this week, uh, it was just a busy week. So it was like every night was out. And I was, by the time we got to like Friday night, 
we were at this uh, event for my daughter, Gracie. It was in a fall dramatic show at school. And so we went to this, and I was just feeling a little spent. Like, I was kind of secretly trying to figure out how doable is it for me to, like, take a nap when the lights go down and no one's going to really notice, right? And so, but I was excited to see my daughter. Um, but, you know, again, it was one more thing in a busy week. So I was talking to a couple of friends who were also there, and uh, we were just kind of chit-chatting, and it was Friday night, so kids' night out was happening here. And so three of our kids were here. So I said, hey, you know, we're actually going to be leaving the fall show early um, because my daughter's on early, and then I don't need to spend time watching other people's kids. And, like, instantaneously when it came out of my mouth, I'm like, I am a jerk. Like, I'm that guy, right? Um, And, you know, I wanted to say something to be like, oh, I didn't mean that. But then that would have been a lie because I actually did mean it, right? Because... (laughs) In the moment, and now you're all like, this guy, what am I doing here? This guy's horrible. Um, but in the moment, all I could think was, I'm exhausted. It's been a crazy week. I just, you know, this is just one more thing, right? And what it was is, I, partly because I have no filter, and many of you are probably much better at filtering than I am, but I just, that, I said what was going on internally in a way that, wasn't super helpful. I wish I would have phrased that differently, but it was true to how I was feeling. And this is what happens with our language. It reflects what's really true about what's going on in our lives. So you can say all you want, I'm generally a gracious person. I don't tend to be cynical. But if people who are around you are like, dude, you are completely cynical all the time, it's depressing to be around you, then you are lying, and they are seeing rightly. Like, what you are saying is a thermometer to, to your soul, to what is happening internally. And so when Paul says, we've got to watch foolish talk, he's, he's really keying in on something that's true about how language works. By and large, what we say reflects what's really going on inside of us. We can pretend a little bit. Like, you can, you can dress it up, you do a good job at work, or in those particular situations. The best place to measure that is what you say around people that you trust and you believe care about you. If you find yourself speaking in a particular way around people who care about you regularly, that's a really good hint. In fact, if you feel really ignorant to this, a, a good exercise might be sitting down with someone, a spouse, a good friend, a sibling, someone who knows you really well, and being like, what do, you th- what do I talk about the most? What do, you think, what, what do you think is going on for me based on how I've been talking recently? It will probably be fairly uncomfortable for you, but it could be a really helpful exercise in checking what's really going on in your heart. Because our language is a thermometer to what's going on in our souls. And if we want to be people who are actually a part of God's transformative work in the world, if we're people who care about about justice and about people knowing their creator and finding life with him, about people finding meaningful relationship with each other, if we care about these kind of massive issues that we see regularly kind of coming in through our computer screens, if all of that matters to us, the first place to start, because I know it's overwhelming, the first place to start is to go, what in my heart is contributing to this in some small way? How am I a part of the problem? And what does it look like for me to be ruthless with myself, to deal honestly with what's going on in my life? 
We need to be ruthless with our, with our hearts. And, and by, by saying that, I don't mean we need to be ruthless with ourselves. I don't mean you, you need to beat yourself up when you find out that you're actually a jerk. Right? Like, it's not super helpful for me to walk away from that conversation with my friends and be like, you were just a horrible, horrible person. Right? Not super constructive. But I need to be ruthless with the crap in my life, with the sin, with the brokenness, with those things that tend to seep out. And the thing is, if you've been with us as we've been talking through this, if you've not, you can go back and read Ephesians chapter 2. One of the realities we learn about God is that God is gracious. God is loving. God is patient. God is forgiving. And so it's actually, sorry, I just kicked my beam off the stage. It's actually really safe to be honest with your crap. Like, it's safe for you to dig down deep and pull up the, the, the junk in your heart and go, this is honestly who I am and what I think in my deepest, darkest parts. Because you will not be rejected. Right? Because that's, that's why we don't want to be ourselves. That's why we don't want to be honest about what's true about us and what's really going on in our lives is we fear being rejected by other people. Because we assume that everybody else has their stuff together. And if they see our crap, they'll reject us. And sometimes we do reject other people because of their crap because we can be shallow, self-centered people. But Jesus reveals a God who gives himself in love for us and knows us better than we know ourselves. So when we dig down deep and find that junk, it's not shocking to God. It might be surprising to you and to me, but not him. So because God is gracious and God is forgiving and God knows us better than we know ourselves, it's safe for you to be ruthless with your stuff. And it's good for you to be ruthless with your stuff because the more honest you can be about who you really are and what you really struggle with, the better you can build who you want to be. The better you can can begin to take steps to become the kind of person you were created to be, a person who reflects the self-giving love of Christ. But you can't get there if you don't know where you're starting from. You've got to have an honest assessment of where you're beginning in order to know how to move forward. And this is important because who you are on the inside spills out in any number of ways. And it will get on the people who are around you. And that could be either really, really good or really, really bad. It all depends on who you're becoming. Henry Nouwen, spiritual director, author, guy, says it this way. He says, the distinction between the private life and the public sphere of life is a false distinction that has created many problems we are struggling with in our day. In the Christian life, the distinction between the private life and the public life does not exist. The mental and spiritual health of a community depends largely on the way its members live their most personal lives as a service to their fellow human beings. What remains hidden, kept in the dark, and uncommunicable can easily become a destructive force always ready to explode in unexpected moments. You've probably experienced that in your life, if you've ever had a blow-up with someone you care about, where you find yourself getting angrier than the situation deserves. And you're like, why? I should not have been that angry. What was going on there? That's generally because there's something going on in your heart that you haven't dealt with. And and this is true all through our lives. We need to be ruthless in digging out 
the, the junk that exists, the, the self-centeredness, the ego, the brokenness, the sin that exists in our own hearts. We need to be ruthless in digging that out so that we can begin to become the people by God's grace that reflect the nature of Christ in the world, the self-giving love that God will actually use to bring about the change that we long for in us, in, in the lives around us, and in the world at large. So a couple of kind of brief things to think about as we uh, get ready to wrap things up. Two takeaways, really. Uh, as we're moving into Thanksgiving week, if you're like me, uh, that's a little surprising to you. Whenever you sit back and go, oh, Thanksgiving is this week, it's, it's here. Uh, but as you think about this week, as you move into this week where you're preparing to either gather with people you care about or do whatever it is that you do on your Thanksgiving holiday, the first thing I would invite you to spend some time doing this week is reflecting on Ephesians chapter 5. Again, if you don't have a Bible at home, I want to encourage you, we've got some on the back counter. Grab one, take it with you as our gift to you. Again, this is a really dense passage, and there's a lot in here. But I would invite you to spend some time this week, maybe a little bit of time each day, reading over this chapter and just kind of listening. Listening for what might stick out to you. For what God's Spirit might kind of poke you with. Like, yeah, that's the thing. Because there are different things for each of us. There are different issues that get at some of the core for each of us. We, we kind of all have fundamental weaknesses that are different than other people. Not better or worse, just different. And so what's really a big issue for me, for you, you're like, meh, and vice versa. So I'd invite you to spend some time thinking about this, meditating on this passage, and allowing the Spirit to, to maybe kind of Speak some things to you as you're listening, as you're reading. And as you realize what is really going on for you, what are the kind of the root problems, to be willing to offer those up to God, trusting that God is gracious and forgiving and loving. And so you can be free to be honest about what it is that is really going on in your heart. So that's the first one. And then the second one, and I'm not even just saying, I didn't even plan this, right? Be thankful. Now, of course, I planned it as in I, I knew that Thanksgiving was going to be this week. But, I mean, it's in Ephesians, right? Again and again, Paul goes back to this idea of gratitude. He says in verse 4, instead, instead of the, the foolish talk and the coarse jesting and the obscene language, he says, instead, let there be thankfulness to God. And then in verse 20, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfulness seems to be, in some ways, kind of a, an, anecdote, an, an antidote or a helpful kind of measure in moving away from self-centeredness. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. If you're thankful for a person, it's difficult to use them in some kind of objectifying way. If you take the time to recognize who they are and what they bring into your life and you express gratitude, it's hard to, hard to objectify them. Harder, at least. Or if you look at what you have and you choose to practice being grateful for it, it suddenly is a little easier to be content. It's funny, uh, 
my wife likes to do these little things, and she has this saying kind of sprawled on the pumpkins that are on our porch. Um, and it's, gratitude makes what you have enough. Which is, you know, a cute little thing she found somewhere. But if you think about it, it's actually true. If we take the time to be thankful for what we have, it's much less likely that we're going to long for more. It's easier to be satisfied when we practice being grateful for what we've been given. So I would encourage you this week, along with reflecting on Ephesians chapter 5, to take a couple of moments each day to be thankful. And, and maybe specifically, depending on who you are, there's a couple ways you could do this. If, if you're good with people, or maybe you need to grow in being good with people, um, think about is there one person you interact with each day that you could express appreciation for? Now, depending on your level of, you know, kind of how comfortable you are with expressing your emotions, you can kind of work that into conversation in whatever way it's appropriate, right? So it can be, I am really grateful for your relationship and your presence in my life. Or it can be, yo, man, thanks, right? Like, whatever. There's a range. But somehow, to take the effort to express gratitude for the people who exist in your life. Now, if that's too... If that's way too intense, okay, maybe what you could do is to choose one or two people this week that you could write a note of thanks to, right? Uh, You know, actually write, like not an email, no one reads those anyways, like to get a thank you card and just write a note of thanks to someone. Again, it doesn't have to be sappy, it can, but just to say, hey, appreciate you for whatever impact they've had on your life. Try and do that this week with one or two people. And see if it doesn't change the way you begin to look at your relationship with them and even your relationship with others. Practicing gratitude has a remarkable way of reshaping and reorienting how we feel about ourselves, what we have, and the relationships that we're in. So even as we move into Thanksgiving this week, let's actually be thankful in intentional ways. Father, I do thank you for your generosity to us in Christ, for your love for us that's expressed in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. As we reflect on that even now, would you help us to be honest about who we are and what's going on inside of us, about places where we might wrestle with greed or sexual immorality or anything else any other tendencies towards selflessness or self selfishness that would push against your call to become more like Christ would you be at work in us by your spirit in helping us become a different kind of people who reflect the image of Christ in our day-to-day lives and we ask this In Jesus' name, amen.